All right, uh, I'll open in prayer. If you would remember tonight, and then I believe tomorrow is the funeral. Uh, uh, Vince Senior, Senior. I don't know exactly how that works because I thought young Vince, his dad was senior, but apparently he's. I don't know what that is, but how that works. But well, whatever it is. So, Mr. Muscat, his dad passed away. Um, so let's pray for their family. I know the viewing has been was today. So let's pray for them, and then we'll dive into our lesson. Father, we thank you for another time when we can get together as a small collection of what is Community Bible Church. I thank you that we have a bond that unites us in Christ that is greater than any other bond that can exist. Thank you that we have uh, a relationship with the Muscat family for bringing them here, for bringing all of us here so that we can um, hold their hands and walk through um, the, the valleys with them. So I pray that you would comfort and encourage them today, that um, the gospel would be clearly presented and communicated um, both through their testimony and through the funeral service tomorrow. Um, I pray that their aching hearts would be healed and that we would be the encouragement that we need to be to each one of them as they go through this trial. Help us tonight as we study. Help us to be um, engaged, that our hearts and our minds would be here and present, ready to tackle this issue of baptism. Help us to think. Help me to think. Help us to think biblically and not think um, our own way, but to submit our minds and our hearts to what you have to say in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so the last couple weeks, I've been throwing lots and lots of stuff at you. And last week was no exception to that. Last week, come on in. Uh, last week, we discussed our position in Christ. And specifically, we talked about union with Christ. And we defined, I shouldn't say we defined, but we said that the result of union with Christ is twofold. Now, you could cheat by looking at review at the top of your sheet, or you could offer some nice guesses. There were two results or two changes that took that take place in us when we are united with Christ. I saw John cheated, so I won't call him. We get a new Okay. That would correspond to our new ability, our new practice, our new experience. But there's something that you could kind of say precedes that experience. <coughs> Did you say it? New life. A new position or a new identity. So we have this, when we are united with Christ, we have an identity. But corresponding with that identity, we have a new experience. So the core concept in this whole thing is that when we are converted, there is a change. There's a change of heart. When we're converted... We are submitting ourselves to the gospel. We are repenting. We're putting off the old, and we are embracing the new. We are... Can anyone remember the definition for repentance? I know my dad can. 
We talked about conversion as a change of heart. Come on. Renouncing your sin. Okay, we're renouncing our sin and ourself. And we are embracing God and His grace. That's conversion, the first half. That pushing off of the old, then the embracing of God and His grace. So there's this fundamental change of identity and experience that is bound up in this thing called the union with Christ or unity in Christ. And then last week we've teased that out on that experience, the present experience of that union with Christ. The time between A to Z, conversion and glorification, we described as what? Progressive. Progressive sanctification. How did we define progressive sanctification? God changing us. Okay. But he's not just changing us, right? There's there's a, a goal or an objective. He's changing us to be like something. Okay, he's making us more holy. So it's a present process of God making us holy. That's pre- uh, progressive sanctification. And I used a couple adjectives to describe that. It's progressive, right? It's it's that we're on this trajectory up, but that just because we're on this trajectory doesn't mean that we're in on this perfect continuum of a trajectory up, right? right. We go up and then we have dips and we have, go up and we have maybe some really significant dips, but we the whole trajectory is like climbing a mountain, but it's up. So it's progressive. It's inevitable. Remember we talked about God promises, Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, right? right. He is going to finish what he started. That's a guarantee. So it is inevitable, but it is not automatic. In other words, you can't just sit back, prop your feet up, watch the Lions get embarrassed again by the NFL refs, and expect your sanctification just going to go, boom, and you're holy. It's not automatic. We are active participants. Remember, Second Peter says that we are to make every effort. Galatians says that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, Romans 6, we are dead to sin, and we are to put off all the remnants and junk left over from our old self. And we are to put on new stuff. We are to clothe ourselves in new stuff. We'll get into that more next week. So it's progressive, it's inevitable, it's not automatic, and it's tough. It is going to be a grind. It's a lifelong process. So our goal for this lesson now is to kind of launch from all the gospel foundation that we have and launch into this discussion about, okay, so now we've talked about progressive sanctification. So what is this first step of our sanctification in the Christian life. And that's where we get into the topic of baptism. So our goal tonight is to discover the true meaning and significance of baptism. The true meaning and significance of baptism. <coughs> Last week I talked a lot. I'm hoping that I won't talk as much this week. I have lots more questions for you. And so I'm hoping that you'll be able to follow along be engaged and answer. So, but I would like to start with a statement. And it's a statement all of us should be familiar with. 
How many of you have never been to a CBC Ordinance Sunday baptism service? Okay, other than my dad, everyone has been there. So we all have heard the, this statement with our ears. Larry, I believe, is usually the one who stands up there and he tells us a little bit about baptism. And here's one of the statements that he makes, and he's very clear on this. He says, water baptism is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Water baptism, I I encourage you to write this down because our entire lesson is going to flow from this statement. Water baptism is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. A physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Now, what do we know right off the bat? If it's a physical symbol, we know that it's... Uh, you see. We can see it, right? It's visible. It's external. It's something that we... It's tangible, right? But on the other side, the spiritual reality, while there's fruit of that spiritual reality, you can't see... The transaction that's taking place, right? right? It's an invisible thing. It's an internal thing. So we have on one side the physical symbol. It's external. It's visible versus spiritual. The spiritual reality, reality which is internal and invisible. So my question is, is what is the spiritual reality that the physical symbol of water baptism symbolizes? What is this spiritual reality and we're going to spend the first part of our discussion teasing this out before you answer that to lodge that in your brain let me tell you why i think this is important there's lots of questions that we all have if you read the lesson there's lots of questions that you might walk away with like who's supposed to be baptized are babies supposed to get baptized are old people supposed to get baptized are middle-aged people supposed to get baptized are unbelievers or believers? How are they supposed to get baptized? Can they get baptized and dunked three times? Father, Son, and Spirit? Or do they just get dunked once? Can you just sprinkle some water on top of their head and that count and be sufficient for baptism? Does baptism save? Because there's a couple of verses in the Bible that, hmm, that really sounds like baptism saves. What effect should baptism have on our life? These are some significant questions. And and we could try to just kind of meticulously walk through and answer these questions. But before we do that, I think it's absolutely essential to understand the spiritual reality. Because get this, if you understand the spiritual reality that water baptism symbolizes, I believe that all of these questions get answered pretty easily. If you understand... The, the, the substance that is casting that shadow to use kind of biblical Hebrew language, it's going to be a lot easier for us to get to those answers. So, what is the spiritual reality that our water baptism symbolizes? Go. I know this sounds like a really wide open question, but let's go for it. I'll give it a one. Okay. I think kind of what you said earlier, you're I guess um, you're putting off your old self and accepting the new self, um, turning your life over to the new life, to, to Christ. Okay. 
You didn't even read the chapter, did you? I didn't. <laughs> Amazing. He just walks in, first day. Well done. Anyone have anything to add? He's certainly right. It kind of symbolizes a cleansing of your sins that you renounced. Okay. And as you turn from them, it's like as it, they aren't washed away because of the act of baptism. They're washed away by the blood of Christ. But, right. And it's an act of obedience. Okay. So the spiritual reality that water baptism symbolizes is what Jim said. That is our old self being dead, right? Mm-hmm. And our, our new self being raised to life. So couldn't we call that maybe what we talked about last week? Union with Christ? Right? Or sometimes the term is called, or a similar term, similar concept is called spirit baptism. They're not exactly the same, but for the sake of this class, we're going to think of them as nearly the same, so we don't have to get into the nitty-gritty details of what exactly is different between spirit baptism and union with Christ. But for now, we can just lump those two terms up into the same thing. We're united with Christ. We are baptized by the Spirit. The Spirit baptism really is the mechanism by which we are united with Christ. Can you think of any texts that would help us define or better understand this symbol or, or what water baptism symbolizes? You don't necessarily have to think about, okay... They use the term spirit baptism, or they use the term union with Christ. Think about the concept that Jim mentioned, dying with Christ, rising with Christ. Old self, crucified, new self. Death, death, burial, and resurrection. I don't know what's that. Okay. Um, First Corinthians 15. Okay, that, uh, that's verses 2 and 3. That's the kind of like the, 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 the core of the gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, rose again according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Remember, we looked at that, I think, week 2 maybe. Turn back with me to Romans 6. We looked at Romans 6 last week, verses 1 through 14. Once we look at a couple texts, then I will go back and I'll give you my definition of what what this term, union with Christ slash spirit baptism, is all about. This spiritual reality of which water baptism symbolizes. So Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And I'll try to emphasize what I have underlined. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly 
guaranteed also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, here's the practical ramifications of what we just read. We have been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection, right? Here's the practical ramifications. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because you have been crucified with Christ, you are dead to sin. Sin no longer has slavery over you. But you have been raised with Christ. Now you have a new life. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. Verse 12, therefore, practically speaking, what are you supposed to do in light of this amazing reality? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6. Flip with me to Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, the very beginning of the of ch- the chapter, he says, Set your hearts on things above, not on things on the earth. And then he gets into verse 5 and he starts talking about some practical ramifications of what that's going to look like. And he says, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, verse 9. Why should we do all this? Why should we put off? Why should we not lie? Why should we rid ourselves of all this junk? Why? Because verse ten or 9 says, Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Last text on this subject, Galatians 2.20. You don't even have to turn there. Let me read it. You could probably all quote it. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So union with Christ. Spirit baptism. We have been identified. We have been joined. We've been linked up in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We all cool with that? That's part, and the big part, of the spiritual reality of which water baptism symbolizes. Look with me at the bottom of your note sheet. 
I put together this chart just to give you a visual of what I'm talking about. This massive transformation that is initiated when you come to Christ through repentance and faith. You are united with Christ in his crucifixion, the left side. So imagine the arrow, you're going down in the water, right? You are buried with him through baptism into death. Into death, Your old self, this is your former identity in Adam. This is when you were enslaved to sin. When you die with Christ, when you are united with him, your sin, your old self, your identity in Adam dies with him. Now, we all know by experience that none of us magically pop out of the water both spiritually or figured or, or literally, and are perfect. Unfortunately, God didn't deem it best for that to happen. Why? How? I don't understand. That's his wisdom, not mine. But we're dunked, we're united with his crucifixion, and then when we're brought out of the waters of baptism, we are raised with Christ. We have been given a new self, a new identity in Christ. I'll get you in just a second. And that new ability to please him has been granted to us. Yes. You used the word last week, um, regenerated. Mm-hmm. Um, the gift of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Look at you. She's taking notes. Man. <laughs> and that's kind of what's happening, right? We're being united to his death, but we are being regenerated. We're be- being given new life. But see, that's not the only component of this union with Christ slash spirit baptism. Look at uh, with me at 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And so far, I think all the texts that I've given you, well, I shouldn't say that. The Colossians and Galatians one were, but the Romans 6 and then this text were in your homework. Mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 12, 12-13 says, For even as the body is one, And yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For, and here's the the key statement, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. What is he talking about there? Anyone know the context? For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. I love the church. Is it the church or Christ? Christ. Believers. The conversion of believers puts us in the body in the body of Christ. Here, the context is is the body of, of Christ, the church. Not Christ. It's kind of talking about a different aspect or a different implication of union with Christ, right? We are united to the body of Christ, not his physical body, but to his spiritual body, the entity that we call the church. So if I could define union with Christ slash spirit baptism this way, I would define it something like this. It's the act of God through which the Holy Spirit, I'll just read the whole thing, stop panicking, Mm -hmm. I'll repeat it numerous times. The act of God through which the Holy Spirit connects the believer to Christ and to his church. The act of God through the Holy Spirit. 
I'm sorry, the act of God through which the Holy Spirit connects the believer to Christ and his church. So it's an act of God. We can't somehow by our good works be united with Christ or baptized by his spirit. It is a work of God through which the Holy Spirit, who if to not fly right over your heads, but when you think about the Trinity, even though that is mind-numbing in and of itself, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Think about it this way. God is the planner. Christ is the accomplisher. He goes and does the hard work, right? And then the Spirit comes and he applies all of that stuff to us. He is the personal agent through which this stuff funnels to us. So, the act of God through which the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is connecting us back to Christ and to his church, his people. And to tag on what we looked at last week, resulting in a new identity and new experience. Is it the reason that it's hammered at in verse 13, whether Jews are done child slave or free, wasn't there an issue going on in the church that... You're in Colossians, right? In Colossians. You're in Colossians. Right? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, it, it says the same thing at the end of the Colossians, Colossians text. The, the issue in the church being that, you know, the, the Jews were different than, say, Gentiles. And, well, I mean, they were pretty. Being hammered well, like they, this? they were. I think it's hammered. It's not just hammered here. I mean, the Corinthian church was really screwed up, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they were pretty messed up. But all these churches had this problem, this dilemma, because they were going through this. In the scope of the story of the Bible, they were going through a unique transition period, right? They were they were God's new people. He he inaugurated the new covenant at Christ's death, and and now we're God's new covenant people. But there are all these Jewish people. They're like what in the world are we? How did how do these Jewish people who who were given directly these great promises of Israel? How, how does all this work? And then, because the Jew or the Jews were saying, "Well, you got to be circumcised." And the Gentiles and I mean Paul and saying, "No, you don't have to be circumcised." So I think that's where it's coming from. Is there's this Jewish Gentile dynamic that it's hard to work through, and and, and it was particularly intense right at the, the beginning of the church and all these church plants of Paul. So I think that's when you get those sorts of statements, and a lot you see that a lot, like Galatians, Colossians, especially those have a lot of that in there. So water baptism is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is that our union with Christ, our spirit baptism. So if that is the case, we have been united with Christ in his death. I can I can hear Pastor Doran, Pastor Tracy saying something to the effect of they're hold they're like you know, doing whatever whatever they do with that, and they're like, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life, right? So that's the imagery, that's the symbolism. So in light of this spiritual reality, how would you answer the following questions? Who qualifies to be baptized? Bapt- water baptism. Who qualifies for that thing? That symbolism. People who have been spiritually baptized. 
What'd you say, Linda? Believe my dad. What your dad he, said. Yeah, he can't sabotage. I said he said it. He said it, and I said it in one word, and he described it more. Believers. Why? Believers. Why? But why only? Why only believers? Well, because if, if an unbeliever is baptized, it doesn't mean anything, um, because then you almost are looking at that the baptism can save you. Um, and what we said is, um, you're, you have to go through where God, and God saves you, you have to go through, um, dying to self, dying to sin, okay. buried with, you know, buried with, um, Christ, and putting on the new self, you know, raised to newness of life. Okay. So are there any texts that you could think of, and I'm not just asking Linda, are there any texts that you could think of that would maybe show us an example of, that we could tie believers uh, being baptized, not unbelievers, but tying it to like some scriptural support. That's all I'm asking. I'm using too many words to ask that. Yeah, just give me, give me a, a text that would support the fact that believers are the ones that are baptized. Okay, I'll give you a hint. Acts. Okay. Don't, don't ask me for a text. <laughs> well, that's what I'm asking for. Philip, be baptized. Jesus. <laughs> well, they, they, okay, Jesus, thank you for the totally junior high answer, Jesus. Read my Bible, pray. Acts 19.4. Acts 19.4, what does it say, John? It talks about it being an act of repentance. And if you aren't, Unbelievers, we have to repent. Unbelievers, okay, for that, have that repented. Okay, look at uh, you. Just listen to me as I read chapter two, Acts chapter two, verses thirty-seven through forty-one. It says, "When the people heard this, this is a response to Peter's amazing Pentecost sermon, where he just concludes. He goes through this argumentation for who Jesus is, and and he says, this Jesus." Can be crucified is both Lord and Christ. He's, he's King. He is King and Savior. And then he says, "Brothers, what shall we do?" Peter replied, "Repent and be baptized. Repent and then be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call." With many other wonders, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Faith is the indispensable prerequisite to baptism. The idea of an unbaptized Christian in New in the New Testament world like was unfathomable. It was never entertained. So what ramifications would this have then on our Presbyterian brothers who would baptize babies? Well it, it never um, scripture never talks about an infant being baptized. I I grew up Catholic and when I um, was going to be baptized and my mom and dad were like well Linda we already baptized you as a baby why do you need to be baptized again and so 
it um, it tore me. So I went and looked up scripture on baptized baptism, and um, it helped me realize that well, one, it's a command. You know, God commands it, and then um, the pattern that I saw was that you're a believer and God commands it, so be baptized. Do it's an outward. You know, I had to explain to my parents. You know, I couldn't explain it that well, but it's an outward profession of an inward change. Yeah. And well said. <clears throat> yeah. So I don't think infants, and I don't see it. Mm-mm. I've never been compelled, and I understand some of the. <clears throat> I don't probably fully understand the theological uh, foundations of infant baptism, but when I just look at the, te- the pages of Scripture, I don't see that argument. Their argument for infant baptism is rooted primarily in that baptism has, like, in a one-to-one basis, completely replaced uh, circumcision, which circumcision was the entry right into the covenant community of Israel. And and while I think that there's a lot of continuity between baptism and circumcision, I don't think it's enough to substantiate, especially when we have absolutely no um, biblical data in the New Testament to support it. I think that that's a pretty fine line, especially when baptism is of believers. So if an infant is somehow a believer, then baptize him. <laughs> Dunk that kid underwater and raise him back up. But if he hasn't repented and believed, then I don't believe it's it's a New Testament sort of baptism. Because it defies the symbolism, right? Right, right. So how should water baptism be administered? <clears throat> Obviously it's administered by the church, but how should it be administered? In light of the fact that water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism or union with Christ. Well, it should be completely submersed because you're burying that old self and then raising to new life. So if you're sprinkling, you're certainly not burying anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we call it baptism by immersion, or you could say submersion. <laughs> it's you dunk, okay. you dunk, and you raise, right? Because it's symbolizing the death, burial, and then resurrection of Christ are joining in that process, thus the symbolism. The, the, the only reference, I think, to that in the Bible that would even indicate that would be, I think, when Jesus was baptized, he said they came up out of the water. I don't, well, what about, was it the Philip situation that you... Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, they, went, they, I mean they, they had to find a body of water. Yeah, they, well, if they could have found... If they had to find a body water? of water, I mean, why couldn't they have just taken a nice you know, one of their clean water bottles mm-hmm. distilled and purified, you know, and just <laughs> dunked it on their head. Right. So, uh, number five, what relationship does water baptism have on my salvation? What impact does it have? Wanda. Wanda. Wanda, what do you think? I can pick on her because I know she's on my team. She's on Mal's team because last week, Hadley refused to say please and thank you when she tried to give her cookies or 
Oh, no. Fruit snacks. And Hadley refused, and Wanda refused. We're going to try again. Mm-hmm. Oh, she refused cookies. Yeah, she, she is a feisty one. So, Wanda, no, so no. what relationship does water baptism have on our salvation? And she's ignoring me. What? What relationship? About I know it's amazing. I could talk about him all the time. But what? Church, what right? real? Yes. What relationship? And Hadley is the most beautiful. But what relationship does water baptism have on our salvation? I underlined it somewhere in here. Really, I did. It's not. <laughs> it's not a trick question. Not a trick answer either. It it shows an act of obedience once your salvation has um, once you've been saved. It's like your first step of obedience. Okay. Okay. No. You looked like you were going to say something. I took a breath. Oh, never mind. I don't think it impacts your salvation. It's it it shows your obedience, but does it really impact your salvation? Can you be a believer? Without being baptized, yes. 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 So I think that this question proves that none of you trust me yet, because <laughs> you all thought that I was asking a trick question. The answer is none. There is no impact. Baptism contributes in no way, shape, or form to your salvation. Right? It can't. There's too much evidence in Scripture. You repent and you believe and you are saved. Now, what about a text such as 1 Peter 3.21, which says this, and this water, or, and this water symbolizes baptism, that now saves you. What? <laughs> Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what do you do with that? Because your Catholic friend is going to walk up to you and say, well, I mean, I got it right here. I mean, I totally got you. You're toast. See, your own word says says it. Spirit baptism. I mean, it doesn't say spirit baptism. That's true. I mean, it says specifically this water, and it's referring to Noah and using all sorts of more imagery and symbolism. So, how can it say the baptism that now saves you? Don't we have to interpret difficult texts in light of, like, all? you can't ever just take a text in isolation, right? You have to take a text and interpret it in the light of all, of all of Scripture, right? You have to interpret it literally, like, using the grammar. You have to interpret it historically in context, but not just the immediate context, the context of the entire Scripture. And we know... Beyond a shadow of a doubt, baptism does not save you. Let me give you a suggested response. We've already alluded to this, but in New Testament times, an unbaptized believer was unthinkable. Right? So there was some, there was such a close connection between belief and baptism that to profess faith and refuse baptism was to essentially throw doubt on the reality of your profession. So I say, I believe, 
but I refuse to do a very simple, obvious thing that Christ commands that you do when you believe, to show everybody that you do believe. You know, kind of like the obedience song, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. You could substitute baptism, first step of obedience, right? If you're unwilling to do that, all you're doing is that should be calling into question one's faith. So there was such a close connection that that, that I believe, is why you could have this sort of, it just, you're baptized, you're a believer, you're a believer, you're baptized. It, it's, it's almost one and the same. Let me give you another response I thought your book provided, or your book provided that I thought was really helpful. Baptism saves us in the same sense that the exchange of rings weds us to another. It is not the wedding ring which unites us to our spouse. Despite the words that we say with this ring, I thee wed. But that ring is a visible sign of our loving commitment to our mate. Just as baptism is the visible sign to God, to believers, and to the world of our faith in Jesus Christ. Right? My wedding ring demonstrates that I'm married to Mallory, but it doesn't marry me to Mallory. What ramifications... And you've already said this, so this shouldn't take long. But what ramifications does water baptism have on your sanctification? It's the, basically the beginning of that process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's the beginning of the process, because if you become a Christian and then you're encouraged to wait, let's say... Because let's say I'm six years old and I, I, I claim to come to Christ and my pastor says, you need to wait till you're 12 just to give it some time to, for whatever reason, that's what their, their posi- the position of that church is. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously the process of sanctification begins, has begun already, but there is a sense in which that is kind of like, one, at least scripturally speaking, bat- belief and baptism are, are never separated like that right there's this expectation that this is the initiating right the first step of of obvious and visible obedience in your in the process of sanctification i I like the way the book describes it as an initiate initiatory right it's like you're being initiated in a society you're being initiated into the church of christ it's an initial step of obedience. So number six that I have, you don't have these, I don't know why I'm saying the numbers, but what effect does baptism have or should it have on your life? And this is a vague question, and I'm sorry. I didn't know how else to put it. But think about what we've talked about. With its symbolism, what very clear practical ramifications would it have on your life? it serves as that visible reminder of what you've done and what you've committed to and you've committed to it in front of lots of people. I am committing to this and I'm putting it out there for everybody to see and it's a, it's a good reminder for us and for other people to say, hey, you know, I was there when you were baptized. I I yeah. saw that commitment that you made. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, yeah, the accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's you're, you're, you're coming out to the world and saying, I am Christ's, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're aligning yourself with Christ. But how did I define union with Christ and spirit baptism? An act of God 
where the Holy Spirit connects believers to Christ and His church. So what implication or ramification would that part of this do? So what ramifications would it have on that, if any? It glorifies God. I mean, it shows what he does in a life. Well, if our water baptism symbolizes our union with Christ and his church, baptism. What do you think is the next logical step after you are baptized in water? Church membership, membership, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized believer, whether you want to call it membership or not in a formal sense, there is the, the New Testament knows nothing of a believer that is disconnected from the church whether it's a, a formal membership covenant that they signed or not. They were connected. And baptism happened, and then you were part of the church. So, if you have never been baptized, by immersion, in water... Let's do it. Right? Let's obey. If you are a believer, your belief will be followed by baptism because baptism is obedience. So if you believe Christ, if you believe the amazing glory of the reality of your union with Christ, then get baptized. Obey his command. And number two, glory in your union with Christ. Because God has supernaturally intervened in your life. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive. He crucified you with Christ and he raised you up to walk in newness of life. This is now who you are. And you have an ability to live that out. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are a slave to Christ. So glory in that fact. Because it's an amazing one. All right, next week, we're going to be talking about our relationship. Yes, I finished almost 15 minutes early. And I will let you out in a second. Um, we're going to talk about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Um, for those of you that might be wondering, most of you probably aren't, but I know Karen is, because last week she asked this really good question. Well, what is this thing called the old self and the new self? And she might not even remember that. You did? Okay, good. And I gave a really quick answer that was bad. I mean, it was right, but it it was kind of all mumbled and jumbled because I had too much to talk about. But next week, and we talked about it, a little bit about it tonight. Old self, new self, right? Well, next week we're gonna. I'm gonna, in part, I'm gonna try to talk about and tease out. Okay, well, if we are, if we died with Christ and we've been given a new identity in Christ. How in the world do we keep on sinning? Like, why do we still have the struggle? Why aren't we just like, boom, perfect? I can't answer it fully, but I can. we can at least look at scripture text to talk about, okay, so what do we do? You know, what do we do? And 
Galatians 5 is very, very instructive for us. And we'll look at Galatians 5 next week as we talk about the Holy Spirit and our relationship to Him. So let's pray and then we'll leave. Father, thank You for the time. I pray that this would be profitable, that we would glory. Uh, for those of us that are believers that have been baptized um, and members of a church, I pray that we would um, glory in the amazing gospel, the good news of our transformation, the death of our old self and the life of our new self. We've been united with you and your people. If we have not been baptized, but we do believe, I pray that we'd be willing to take that first step of, of obedience, that we would glorify you and we would obey you because we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.